First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's the first day of May. Let's hope the weather figures that out pretty soon because it sure doesn't feel like May. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. As always on Monday, we got some meaty stories to talk about that we published over the weekend. Let's start with the lottery. With the unfathomable amounts of money being bet on sports in Ohio since it became legal in January, how is it possible that the Ohio Lottery Commission is actually losing money on sports betting? Lisa. Well, unfortunately, the Lottery Commission only controls the least lucrative form of betting. So the lottery only gets revenue from betting kiosks. There are about 940 of them in the state right now. So only $3.2 million in bets have been made on kiosks through March since January 1 when it was legalized, way behind mobile and sports books. So um, I like... At $1.75 billion in bets that we've had so far since gambling moves made legal sports gambling, 97.5% are made on mobile apps, 2.3% are made at betting lounges, and then a tenth of a percent of bets are made at kiosks. So they got $350,000 in revenue, but that's split between the lottery and the kiosk operators. So the lottery share for three months was $75,473, but it cost costs them more than $54,000 a month to operate and regulate the kiosks. So it's a losing transaction. Yeah, it's interesting that the the way this was put together in the legislature, they really kind of stuck it to the Lottery Commission. I mean, they Mm -hmm. shouldn't be losing money on a venture while the state is taking in money. It's a fascinating story because it looked at all the variables. It looked at the taxes the state is getting, and it's just a loser. How does that happen? Lottery Commission spokeswoman Daniel Fritzy Babb says we knew it wouldn't be as lucrative as traditional lottery gaming because she says sports gaming odds are more changeable and volatile. So they weren't expecting a big windfall. But the sports betting taxes go directly to the state. There's a 10% tax. But even if the lottery got their share of the taxes, it would be about $35,000. So even adding that to their revenue, they would still be underwater. I wonder if we get to a point where the legislature changes the law somewhat to either absolve the Lottery Commission of having to do this or figure out some way for them not to lose money doing it. They make tons of money on casino gambling. Anyway. mm -hmm. You could say that overall gambling is lucrative, but just an odd one. Good story. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com, and you are listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, Layla, this is my favorite story the past few days. Does the structure of Cleveland government 
guarantee the battles like we're seeing over whether to spend millions of dollars on the West Side market. Would Cleveland be better off if it had some of its council members be elected at large to see the big picture instead of this myopic focus we get on geographic wards? Well, in short, yes to all of those questions. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this was one of my favorite stories too. Courtney Astolfi did a really tremendous analysis that ran over the weekend looking at how this battle over whether to spend $15 million of American Rescue Plan Act money on renovations at the market is is actually a microcosm of how politics works in Cleveland. Listeners have been hearing about this for a while, but in a nutshell, Mayor Justin Bibb argues that protecting the market from falling into further disrepair and making these long overdue improvements is essential, not just for the market and for the Ohio City neighborhood, but for the city. The city owns that market. It's a city asset and it's it's a big tourist draw. But some city council members bristle at that price tag and, and point to the long overdue investments in many of the neglected Cleveland neighborhoods, particularly on the city's southeast side. Justin Bibb has a plan for that part of town and it also involves $15 million in ARPA money. But some council members have said, you know, well, okay, that's good, but you're spending that much money on fixing up one grocery store on the West Side. You know, they're calling for equity among the neighborhoods. And this really feels like it has become kind of a perennial debate that the mayor is always accused of caring more about the city center or specific institutions or the business community or gentrified neighborhoods than he does about other poor parts of town. Frank Jackson experienced the same thing when he agreed to the deal to help pay for faster escalators and that giant scoreboard at Brown Stadium or when he got behind the deal to spend city money on renovations to Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. In that case, voters even attempted a referendum to undo it unless the city spent an equal amount of money in the neighborhoods. And underlying a lot of this tension, some experts told Courtney, is the ward-based system that stems from this older East Coast style of government Unlike the newer cities like Columbus, for example, which has some at-large representation on council that are, you know, those people are designed to look out for the good of the whole city, Cleveland is all wards. And one council president, who is elected also to represent his ward, and make no mistake about that, and that tends to engender a fiefdom mentality among them. They are elected by the people in their ward. So it does an east side council person, for example, little good to enthusiastically support a $15 million investment in a market on the west side of town or a stadium downtown that hosts expensive sporting events that his or her constituents might never attend. So she just did a fantastic job of parsing out this uh this tension and where it comes from. Yeah, the, the the story had a couple of elements that I was glad she she included. Years ago, uh, Frank Jackson, when he was mayor, and Kevin Kelly worked out a deal to completely overhaul the way they pave roads. If you'll remember, ten years ago, Cleveland streets were a disaster. It was like driving on the moon, up and down, craters everywhere because they parceled out equal amounts of money to every council person and they decided what roads to do and they'd keep repaving the same roads. I mean, it, they did not look out for the greater good. They changed it to a priority system, which roads in the city are in the worst shape and need the most work. And since then, driving around in Cleveland is hugely better. I mean, you could see it within a few years, the change coming. And that, that's why the parochialism of the council is a bad idea. They still want to go back to the old way. They still whine, as she pointed out, 
but it, it's not healthy. She did have another comment. I forget who said it that said this, this conflict is a healthy conflict that, that you have two sides that constantly negotiate. That's a positive. Yeah. And how do you feel about that? Do you agree? Do you think that, I mean, that, that I thought was a, that was a, a moment that caused me to pause. Cause I, I hadn't looked at it that way. What do you think? I Chris? think you'd still have the conflict if you had some at-large council people. The only council person I saw quoted in that story that had anything like the higher view was Joe Jones when he talked about the need to invest in some of the downtown things because it's important for the heart of the city. Um, you just have they're they're all thinking very parochially, all of them generally, and it's not a healthy situation when it's all me, my, mine. And some of the newer council people are some of the worst in thinking that way. Richard Starr is is just one hundred percent focused on his ward, and the rest of the city be damned. That's not healthy. Um, you're supposed to have bigger thinkers. Yes, yeah. Richard Starr has been kind of driving that that movement to to do something similar to what County Council has been doing with ARPA money, which is carve out specific, you know, yeah. pots of money for each each ward to spend at their as they wish. And and they're you know that lot that thinking is well I know better what's best for my community, but you are part of the Cleveland community. This right. is. You have to think broader than that. And I really like this quote in the article from OSU Professor Ned Hill. He says, you know, there's a problem when there's local grassroots patronage that ends up hurting the city when council members are solely focused on their wards. And I, I, I completely see that. Yeah, it's amazing to me that we created a county council that's based on geographic wards after learning from this. The Cleveland government's been in place for forever. I mean, a long time. The size of the council has dropped over the years, but it would be interesting to see if you could get a charter change going to have a handful of members who think about the big picture so that that conflict is not so out of balance. Anyway, good story by Courtney. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Who is the super PAC spending money on lies to convince Ohioans that reducing the power of their vote and abolishing majority rule is really good for them? Laura. Well, if we knew, it wouldn't be a super PAC, right? It's it's dark money. So we don't know who's behind it, really. But it's called Save Our Constitution. And it's warning of, quote, radical big money liberals who don't share our values, end quote, trying to bypass both Ohioans and elected lawmakers. To be completely clear, what they're trying to push for is minority rule. But the attorney who incorporated this has a history of running dark money organizations for anti-abortion groups and activists on the Christian right. The Columbus Dispatch actually reported that a conservative mega donor named Richard Uline gave $1.1 million to the super PAC. We couldn't confirm that, even though we tried. But it's pretty clear based on the attorney that and what they're pushing, that there is a, what their motive is. We had a great letter to the editor today that points out the total hypocrisy of what's happening here. The campaign is telling Ohioans that outside forces want to change the constitution. They have to protect it. But this is the outside force and they're trying to change the constitution yeah. mm -hmm. to reduce the power of the voter. They're doing exactly what they're telling the voters they need to, to stop. And if the voters get fooled by that, they're morons. This is as clear as can be outside interests pushing it. 
and right. and got- again, dark money. So you know, the last time dark money played a big role in Ohio politics, we saw how that ended up with First Energy bribing Larry Householder with sixty million dollars. Right, exactly. And so they have ads pushing, um, you know, these are, they're, they're talking about this. And they said, instead of leaders, we elect making the laws, the Ohio Constitution can be bought by woke, radical, out of state liberals. And <laughs> it's like, okay, but see, but the only question he say, they, it's the liberals, right? The woke, radical liberals, when really, it's the radical conservatives that are doing it. I mean, right. it, it's, it's, Absolutely ridiculous. The lawyer on this was the lead author of the proposed amendment to Ohio's constitution defining marriages between a man and a woman that passed in 2004. He incorporated three entities affiliated with, quote, Protect Women Ohio, which is a coalition of anti-abortion organizations uh, that collectively committed $5 million to opposing the abortion rights amendment. Um, Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose mentioned alongside this. So, I mean... We can't, Again, dark money, but... Well, and we should mention Frank LaRose every time we talk about this. He ran for re-election last year, never said a word about this, and as soon as he got elected, he started pushing us. He's the Secretary of State. He is charged with protecting the power of the voter, and he's trying to savage it and get rid of majority rule. What would happen if you had a constitutional amendment that said you could change the Constitution with 40% of the vote? Basically, this is that in reverse. They're yeah, allowing is- the 40% to dictate what the 60% will do. It is the tyranny of the minority. That's who Frank LaRose is. And they want to enshrine that in the Ohio Constitution. And let's be very clear who's signing on to this. Anti-abortion, gun lobbyists, restaurant lobbyists, all aligning with Republicans on this. There's a whole long line. I think it's more than 200 organizations ranging from labor unions to the ACLU opposing it. All four living ex-governors have opposed this. I mean, it could not be more clear who is behind this, even if it is dark money. We know you know, the idea, the groups that are behind it. And I just, I hope that people are paying attention. If we get to this, I hope people are paying attention in August and they come out in droves. Well, let's stick with this. Uh, You got a double shot here. What's the clear (laughs) sign that the Republicans looking to reduce the power of the voter are driven not by the voters, but by special interest lobbyists? We saw it big last week. Because the lobbyists are whipping the representatives. I mean, this is not coming. We're talking about the House here, right? The Senate's already passed it. Um, We can talk a little bit about Governor DeWine later. But this is in the Ohio House. This is not Jason Stevens, the the House Speaker, who's doing this. This is the groups behind the effort. Ohio Right to Life and the Buckeye Firearms Association. They are passing around petitions, basically getting everybody to sign on saying, we want this on the August ballot. We want to take away people's rights to change their constitution. So they have 51 House Republican lawmakers who have actually signed these documents, and they claim an additional eight lawmakers have submitted letters of support directly to Stevens. And he gets to decide when and if this goes to a floor vote. We we tried, the State House Bureau tried really hard to get all eight of those on the record on Friday, but we're unable to. I don't think they want to talk about it. Well, but the key thing here is they're not representing us. They're, no. they're representing these special interest groups. This is exactly what Larry Householder did. He didn't represent us. He didn't look out for the greater good. He represented First Energy's lobbyists who wanted him to do things to the detriment of the voter. That's what's happening here. The lawmakers are not 
answering to the people that put them in the office. They're they're being whipped into shape by lobbyists. It's and th- that's the key here is what's going on. You are going to harm voters across Ohio to satisfy some lobbyists that are beating on people to support it. Absolutely. So no Democrats have said they will support this proposal at all. Uh, We have two in our area. You know, we don't have a ton of Republicans representing Northeast Ohio, but Steve Demetrio from Geauga County, Bill Romer of Richfield have signed on to this. And then there are six House Republicans who have not said either way. That includes uh, Jason Stevens, Speaker Pro Tempore, uh, Scott Olschlager from North Canton, um, Gail Manning from North Ridgeville, and Tom Patton from Strongsville. Yeah, I I still don't understand why the Democrats who helped elect Stevens are not using their clout to block this vote. Can we talk a little bit about Mike DeWine here, just to put on the record? I mean, we talked about it before, but he said that he'll sign this bill because in order to get the August election before the November election, where the abortion rights uh, constitutional amendment is supposed to be on, it has to get the signature of the governor. He has signed on to this. Uh, you're talking about, you know, great letters to the editor. I liked Brent Larkin's column where right. he ba- basically says he misses the DeWine of early in the pandemic. I said the same mm-hmm. thing last week. Remember when he stood up to Republicans and stood up for the people of Ohio well, at the beginning of the pandemic? And now it seems like he's got no backbone. Well, and what Brent pointed out clearly, he's de- DeWine is destroying whatever legacy he thought he'd have. This will be the mark that he is almost a coward now. He's whatever the Republicans in the legislature want, they get. He spoke out against this. He signed the law this year to stop August elections. Where is the backbone that we used to see with Mike DeWine? You're listening to Today in Ohio. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. What a shock. Ohio lawmakers did not act on legalizing marijuana by their deadline. So what happens next for the people seeking to make marijuana completely legal in Ohio, Lisa? I believe their deadline is this Thursday, so we still have a few days, but it's not looking very uh, possible. So like I said, the deadline for lawmakers to pass a bill to legalize recreational marijuana is this Thursday, May 4th, but there has been no draft legislation in either the House or the Senate. There have been no committee meetings on this. Ohio Senate President Matt Huffman from Lima said via a spokesman that it's a terrible policy that our members and the president don't support. So there you have it. But the day after that deadline passes, the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana-Like Alcohol campaign can start collecting signatures. So that would be Friday. That would They need 125,000 signatures from Ohio voters for the initiated statute. Tom Heron, who's an attorney for marijuana businesses behind the campaign, says, you know, the legislature is not going to do anything. So we're ready to move forward on this. 
Yeah, it was odd, if you'll recall. They delayed it a year in a deal with the legislature because there were some questions about their wording. But it sounds like this has to go to the voters. But the timing of this is interesting, right? Because what happens if they change the Constitution in August? Oh, this is an initiated statute. It's not a constitutional right. limit. It's, right. it, that is correct. So it's, it doesn't fall under those rules. So, yeah, and if you remember, the coalition sued back in May of last year because there were issues over what the four-month period was in the legislature. The dates were wrong, and so they sued, and, you know, they like you said, they settled out of court. But they were trying to get it on the ballot last November, and it didn't happen because of this legal flap. Yeah, so we'll have petitions out probably all late summer. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's go back to the West Side Market for a minute. Paris Wolf wrote up the history of the place for perspective, and her story likely contains a lot of details people do not know. Layla, what is the history? Yeah, Paris attended this discussion of the market history and architecture at the Cleveland History Center. It was part of this um, series on the market. And she learned that for at least 100 years before the West Side Market was established in 1912, the corner of West 25th and Lorraine was home to another farmer's market that was known as the Pearl Street Market. And it really catered to European immigrants who were looking for items that helped them keep their ethnic food traditions alive. And it gave many folks a pathway to entrepreneurship because the rent was so low for vendors and, and leases were short term. Today's market was designed by renowned local architects W. Dominic Bennis and Benjamin Hubble, and it really seems that they spared no expense in keep making sure the the building would withstand the test of time. Unlike today's structures that use you know brick veneers and crap construction underneath, the West Side Market is built with solid bricks, three layers thick. Even the mortar was engineered to expand and contract with the building's temperature fluctuations. Her story included a bunch of really delightful facts about the olden days at the market. Like, for instance, before people had refrigerators in their homes, the market offered refrigeration services for a fee. And I think my favorite detail was a horseradish vendor had to sell his wares outside because the smell was too pungent and made people's eyes water. I, I just love that detail. I think I'm going to write a novel set in early 20th century Cleveland, and my main character is going to be this horseradish vendor <laughs> <laughs> who no one wants to be around. <laughs> it was a delightful story, a nice surprise, one of those you know golden gems that come along. Paris did a really nice job with it. So yeah. we're thinking about, as we talk about spending $15 million on the place, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How was the case of the guy accused of firebombing a Jaga County church over LGBTQ issues indicative of the current state of homegrown terrorism in America? Lisa Adams, Teresa's story over the weekend was a pretty frightening one for what is around us. Yeah, Adam talked to Jonathan Lewis, who is an extremism researcher at George Washington University. And Lewis basically said that the uh, arrest of Eamon Penny of Alliance um, is in good indicator of the types of violent extremism that's bubbling to the surface today. And he said that hate groups are actually becoming more decentralized. They don't have any clear affiliations or hierarchy. He calls it do-it-yourself terrorism. So a recent report from the Anti-Defamation League found a spike in Ohio white supremacist activity. And the case in point is 
Eamon Penny of Alliance. He lobbed Molotov cocktails at a Chesterland church that was hosting a drag queen story hour. And uh, he only caused minor damage. But you know, when he was arrested and arraigned, he said his only regret was that it didn't burn down completely. Um, he's obviously been um, radicalized. He was at the, well, there was a drag queen big protest in Wadsworth for a drag queen story hour in April of 20, or, or I don't remember when it was. It was recently. But anyway, um, he was there. He was passing out flyers there. He is affiliated with Ohio White Lives Matter. And uh, yeah, so this is indicative of what's going on. We have like lone wolves or small groups that are operating, you know, passing out flyers and doing protests. There have been mostly small protests by this group, Ohio White Lives Matter. And they stand outside of government buildings, parks, busy roads and overpasses, usually five to 15 people, but they are protesting monthly. There's something about the, the age that that 19, 20, 21 year old group that just seems like they're vulnerable to this kind of nonsense. The guy that uh, was arrested for leaking all the, the confidential material that keeps coming up is another mm -hmm. one that was in that age group when he was on chat rooms. And what's scary about this story is, is there's nobody in the chat room saying, Hey, let's bomb something. They, they're letting people kind of come to that mm -hmm. conclusion on their own. Mm -hmm. And how do you mm -hmm. combat that? You, you don't, I mean, and obviously there are first amendment issues here, but you know, Penny and his type. They, you know, are in the dark corners of the internet. Telegram. He used Telegram to talk to his people and, 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 you know, 4chan is another one. 8chan is another one. But yeah, it's, it's, it's scary because you never know who's going to finally snap and decide that, okay, today's the day I'm going to bomb a, you know, a gay bar or whatever. And it is, I mean, you think they're so young. You're like, how did you get to be so full of hate so quickly like what was your background like i it's i don't know it's hard to, it's 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 hard to comprehend it's well when i read those those battling editorials in in uh, the plain dealer about you know how white men are you know you know are just in in terrible straits you know i think that's part of it i think that they feel that they're losing their power um they see a diversifying nation and they feel powerless and this is their way to get that power back there's got to be some way of making them feel a sense of community rather than hate. It, it, it feels like we're not giving people that age something to feel a part of. So right. they get together and they feel a part of this. Right. Something. Right. right. If you don't go to college, if you're not a member of a sports team, if you don't have a church group or a strong family unit, like, yeah, we've talked about this before, that people want to belong to something. Well, it's a thoughtful story by Adam. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What happened to the money Ohio Governor Mike DeWine wanted to spend on maintaining rail crossings in Ohio? And have legislators already forgotten about East Palestine? Layla, this came out of nowhere. Yeah, DeWine, DeWine's state budget proposal had included $125 million to improve rail crossings in the state. And the lawmakers and the Republican-led Ohio House stripped it out before passing the $88 billion budget. So it'll be up to the Senate to decide whether to restore that funding. And if they do that, it would allow the state to leverage it for more federal funding. The, the deal that's on the table is that the federal government would put up 80% of the cost to build grade separations at rail crossings, and then the states and local government or private investments would make up the rest. 
and 80% is a pretty good deal. <laughs> it sounds like the money for this would have come from the surplus from the last budget cycle, but mysteriously and really without explaining why the Republicans removed it, the closest we've been able to, to find by way of an explanation is from Representative Jay Edwards, who's the Republican chairman of the House Finance Committee. He told Gongor News that they just want to wait and see what happens with litigation and the inve- investigation surrounding the East Palestine derailment which really has nothing to do mm. with safety at rail crossings, but, you know, whatever. The House and Senate have to eventually reconcile their two versions of the budget bill before sending it back to DeWine for a signature, and that has to happen before the fiscal year ends June 30th. I don't know what it is about Ohio, but it's almost like it's declared war on rail. We, we constantly are fighting over whether we should take the federal dollars that they're offering yeah, to right. upgrade and improve rail. This is a no-brainer. Of course you should take the money. This is a safety issue for anybody that drives across a railroad track. I don't get right. it. And grade separations, that, I mean, we're talking like overpasses, right? Isn't that what the grade separation provides? It's it's so that you don't get stuck at, at rail crossings anymore when a train breaks down on yeah. your, you know... Yeah. Isn't that isn't that what that would achieve? Who who wouldn't take eighty percent of the funding from the federal government to to get this done? That's yeah, seems like a no brainer. This state you're listening to today in Ohio. <laughs> All right, Laura, as the person who oversaw Rock the Lake, the website, you had to be surprised by this. Is the Nautica Queen heading to the shipping graveyard? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is Lady Caroline that's coming to uh, Cleveland on her on her way through the St. Lawrence Seaway, and will should be here by the end of next this week, beginning of next week. We are going to be taking photos and having a gallery on Cleveland.com. The Nautica Queen's been cruising the Cuyahoga River and Lake Erie since 1992. It was used for more than a decade before that, so it's about the same age as me. And the new boat is named after the daughter of Jeffrey Jacobs, who's CEO of the Jacobs Group, which owns that entertainment complex and the flats. So we're talking about a boat that's 120 feet long, 15,000 square feet of space on board. Is it is it that much of an upgrade? Is there more amenities? Is it going to be something that gets people out. You've ridden on the Nautical Queen, right? I've been on it. I don't know that I've ever cruised on it. I've definitely been on the Good Time, which is a much bigger boat. So, because the Nautica has, uh, it's more for like buffets and like has a Mother's Day thing and an Easter thing and you can rent it out for ceremonies and people get married on it. So, it's it's a little uh, more upscale and smaller and sleeker. So, this, I, I don't I don't really know. Ex- the, the idea is there's more amenities. They have three decks that are climate controlled. So for for Cleveland days, that sounds pretty good. So they'll have one open air deck, an open air sky deck with a bar, a DJ, panoramic views of the lake. So we're going to get more details on this when we actually get inside next week. And and I'm sure people will be excited to see it. But it does sound weird that there won't be a Nautica anymore. There's still like Nautica on the flats, but whole new name for this new boat. But the good time is... Good times, totally separate. Substantially but. larger. Yes, substantially larger. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Monday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast.